Hello, good evening, and welcome to the TNT show. I'm John Drummond, and I'm your host for the next six, eight, and I guarantee you exciting minutes. You'll be so glad you joined us tonight. You know, it's been another great day for British democracy. I, I say this so often, but it's absolutely true. Uh, each and every day brings a new scandal. Just when you think that corruption has reached its, its nadir, uh, if that's what corruption reaches, uh, we plumb further depths. Uh, and in unconnected news tonight, we learn that it's been a huge relief uh, to the Dyson company that the Prime Minister's brother was available to join its board. And, and I'm sure we wish them all well in that appointment. Thanks for joining us this evening. Uh, tonight, Richard Haviland is joining us. Now, Richard has been on a journey since he voted no in the 2014 election. Uh, and we'll be talking about Richard's journey, what it means to him, and what it might mean to many others. And we'll be talking about so much else besides. You really don't want to miss this. So in many respects, this is your show. Now to our guest tonight, The Nation Talks to Richard Havard. Richard, how are you coping with the pandemic? Hi, John, and thanks for having me. Um, very well, really. We're very lucky. I've, I've said several times to people that if there had to be a pandemic in my lifetime, it's as good a time to, to have happened as it could have been. I'm sort of too old to, to need to go out much. And I'm, I've got young kids who are not old enough to be that badly affected by it. And we live in, in rural Indonesia, so we're, you know, we're, we're in a pretty good place and we have nothing much to complain about. Um, so we, we How old are your children? They are, uh, good question, <laughs> seven, five and three. I'm a bit of a late starter. So yeah, the, the oldest is, is, is in school and, and uh, you know, has been been doing a bit of home learning, but, but none of them are too badly affected, I don't think. So, yeah. so we, we feel very fortunate indeed. It must have been quite stressful for you and your wife to be doing what you have to do and then also look after all the kids as well. And school them, I assume. Yeah, yeah, it's been busy. <laughs> um, and obviously the holiday lets have been closed at the, at the kind of peak lock of the lockdown times. And um, again, we haven't been too badly affected by that because we would have been closed in the winter months anyway. So we've, we've been fortunate in that respect. We've missed a bit of a bit of business, not, not too much. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been frantic, but in a kind of frantic domestic way, you know. Um, <laughs> I'll look back and I'll look back and tell myself it was great fun. I'm sure. <laughs> So you're in the holiday lets business. How how is it looking with prospective bookings and stuff? Well, we're booked out now. I mean, we, we, we had customers last week for the first time. Uh, we're now booked out really for the for the rest of the summer in one of them at least, which which is it, it does particularly Excellent. well. So people want breaks. Uh, again, we're fortunate. We're in a good business. We're self catering, so we don't we don't even you know need to meet them in the building face to face. Um, it's a beautiful spot and. Um, we're lucky we've got people want to get get out here as quickly as they yeah. can. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine, particularly folks who are stuck in the middle of a town, let's say, and you you, you can't go abroad, not unless you're very fortunate, you've got your own private jet, perhaps. Exactly. So for most of us, it means staycation. Yeah. It means looking for someplace uh, close to home, perhaps, not terribly far away, but somewhere that provides a break Yeah. so that we can relax and, and sort of, for the first time, get outdoors and not feel that we're breaking any lockdown restrictions or any of that stuff. And it's a, it's a lovely feeling. I mean, this is new business to me. As you know, I've been a civil servant most of my career, but, but, but seeing the pleasure it gives, it really is. I mean, seeing people's faces light up when they arrive and see the view, which is tremendous. Um, so it's, it's, it's nice to make people happy. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Now, tell us about Richard Haviland. Where, where were you born? Where did you grow up? I gather you went to school, the same school as Nigel Farage. 
Tell I, us did, all I, I wasn't I wasn't the same year as him. I didn't know him, but um, poor Dallas College has sort of suffered a bit from that connection. So I was adding that a lot, lot, thousands of far more attractive people than Nigel Farage went to Dallas College. Yeah, I, I grew up in London, uh, South London, um, in the seventies and eighties. Um, what you might call a very you know. Well, so classically Anglo-Scottish, very symmetrical family. So my my um, my father was English from Surrey, but with a is it was I mean it is so they're still going strong both my parents. Uh, but but a Scots mother. So um, my mother grew up in Scotland, um, came to London when they got married, but had um, two English grandmothers. So both of them were kind of 50-50. and um, you know so I grew up feeling just entirely British um, and Anglo-Scottish, but but also very sort of aware of my separate identities within that so you know very very so proudly i don't know the word proud is overused but you know what i'm saying um you know f- feeling very english on one side and very scottish on another side and uh, very london too you know we used to have um long family holidays in scotland and christmas as well and i've got a vast family in, in perthshire um most of the musical not me but we had sort of big kayleys at hogmanay so you know i'd quite often be Doing that, and then three days later, I'd be on the terraces at Arsenal, trying to sound as London as I possibly could to, to blend in there, you know. Um, so, really, sort of going back and forth and um, feeling tremendously sort of attached um, to both England and Scotland and to, to London, too. Um, so, that was my upbringing. My uh, two older brothers, too. Um, so, we all went to the same school. I meant we talked about Dutch College. Um, pretty comfortable, um, pretty privileged, very happy. Um, loving parents, um, sort of hard to know where to begin with them, really. But we, um, my father was a political journalist for m- much of the 70s and 80s. Uh, so for the largely the ITN, uh, also the Times towards the end. Um, my mother, uh, before she married, worked in Austria uh, helping with refugees, um, then gave up paid work to, to start a family. Um, so I think what I'd say is they both instilled in all of us tremendously internationalist values you know very outward looking values we spend a lot of our time traveling and i continue to do that as an adult um, um you know a belief in the need to sort of um, look out and see the world and to understand others and sort of values of tolerance and compassion i hope so you know strong strong values in that respect and um where did that take me um it took me from school to University in Edinburgh. I studied languages and Spanish, Portuguese. Had some time living in Spain for a bit, um, and then from there into the civil service. I was a civil servant for best part of twenty-five years, predominantly in the Department for International Development, which, as you probably know, is now being merged into the Foreign Office. Um, so all all the jobs I did in in, in the government were for, were international in, in outlook, if you like, so international departments um, and. Yeah, I, I regarded myself more as a civil servant than as a development expert. Um, different, but I, you know, I felt tremendously proud uh, all those years to work for for Diffid, given what it was doing. And, you know, it really is a source of great pride still. I think for you know, all those things sort of whittled down, if you like, a merger of front office. So it's still a matter of pride. I think that the the slashing of the A budget this year is a terrible tragedy, um, both in itself and for Britain's reputation. But I was very, yeah, very, very proud to work there and sad to leave, although when I left two years ago, but I, but I felt the time come to get out. I was struggling, if I'm honest, to work for this government. Um, and, and here I am. I sort of washed up in, a, I, be, I, I should have said in, in, within all that, I moved to Scotland about eight years ago. 
really not long before the 2014 referendum um, to start a family. And we've ended up here. And I think we'll, we'll stop here now because it's a pretty nice place to be and we're enjoying the let's. And, and your wife is Welsh, is that right? Or America? Or? She is, she's English born, Welsh. So, well, she'll never forgive me that. She's Welsh born so, to an English, also Anglo Scottish family background, and then spent time in America too. And, uh, I think she's listening in the other room now, so I'll probably get a slap across the wrist for my <laughs> faux pas there. Um, um, but yeah, yes, yeah, so, so we, we're quite sort of, you know, with the, the, the Scottish, the English, the Welsh, we're quite, sort of, and then a bit of American too. We're, we sort of got a, got a mix in us. So, here you are, you're, you're living in Scotland, the 2014 referendum comes along, and your view was what? Well, my view then, I mean, it really wasn't long before the 2014 referendum I moved up, so I, you know, I was quick to, to register to vote because I wanted to vote, and I wanted to vote no. And I didn't do much reading or much much thinking about it, if I'm honest, because I, I suppose given the background I've just described, it wasn't, there, wasn't, there was no question to be asked for me I mean it was just a, a matter of instinct to to vote to keep the union together um, I did read Gordon Brown's book at the time I mean uh, and I and I admired it and I thought it was full of uh, interesting observations about the nature of the of the UK and Britain um, but it didn't shape my vote I mean I was going to vote no anyway and um, yeah I didn't as I, as I said I didn't give an awful lot of thought to it I think it was just a um, something was very important to me to be able to do and I felt lucky to be able to vote having moved so relatively recently um, up what, to Scotland. At that time, what was your view of the people who espoused constitutional change in, in the Yes campaign? Did you think they were a little bit sort of oddball? Or... No, I've never, I mean, I've, I've never seen, um, that oddball, interesting question, I guess, you know, I guess the traditional view of a, many a unionist, and I don't like, again, I don't like all these words because these labels define us in a way, you know, but in other people's eyes in a way we don't necessarily want to be defined. But I think, um, yeah, I, I don't think, I think that many people uh, historically haven't taken the independence movement particularly seriously as, a, as a, in terms of as, as being a real threat to the union. And actually when I moved up, which wasn't that long before the referendum, it was only sort of the last few weeks, as you know, that the polls started to, to get close. Um, but I, I, I've always respected people's points of view. I think, you know, you're one, of the, one of the, we'll come on to this later on, maybe when we talk about language, but I mean, the word divisive is often used. I mean, divisive to me is not a, it's not a, it's not a matter of your politics, it's a matter of how you conduct your politics. So people are entitled to their view. I fully understand. I think I fully understood even then there were many people in Scotland who simply didn't feel a connection or particular belonging to Britain or the UK state as a concept. I just disagreed. Um, uh, so I didn't, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to get into it. I don't, I don't think, I think Salmon, Alex Salmon is a, you know, has done incredible things for Scottish independence. Nobody could deny that. I don't think, I think he's a bit of a Marmite figure, even he was then to, to Unionists. I mean, he's not, he was not a, a person I found particularly, you know, as a Unionist on the other side of the debate, um, I found particularly um, yeah, I, I suppose at the time I did find him quite a divisive figure, but I mean, I, I'm also retrofitting what I think I was thinking then to in the light of what I think now. So, um, so yeah, I, I think uh, there wasn't much of a debate for me to be had at the time. Um, but I've, as I say, I've always respected the other side. I, I, I don't, I've, uh, and I've, not least because I know many people who are lifelong independent supporters. And um, one of the frustrations about um, constitutional politics, particularly, is that um, you know, if you leave it just to the politicians, for reasons I understand, and to, to the 
the political commentators, um, you just get an awful lot of poison flying back and forth. And, and you know, most of us are, are um, or many of us at least are somewhere in the middle and we're just you know, trying to negotiate our way through a yep. very complex set of questions, um, which you know, bring in economics, democracy and governance, which we're going to come on to, um, and above all that, sort of our, you know, ties of history and culture and society, which are the hardest thing to kind of pin down, really, and, and, and as I say, probably the thing that, that most, most inform many unionist folks. How much do you think, you've talked about the language there, Richard, how much do you think the language is preventing a, a, a proper discussion? Or, or do you feel it's only politicians who are doing this, or have yeah. we just not got the, the right lexicon for, for dealing with constitutional change, perhaps? Well, I think it's a good question. I think, um, I mean, it's very, very easy. You know, I'm not condemning people for doing this, to, and you know, everybody does it to, to slip in. You know, you need language to describe political creeds and concepts, and it's very easy to slip into. Uh, lazy use of language and labels, um, but it's also a fact that it can be used as a weapon, you know, and I think uh, I'm coming from one side of the boat here, but yeah, I'm very, as, as somebody who has changed my vote, albeit still with, with doubts and, and, you know, it's, it's still quite a difficult journey to have made, um, you know, I'm very conscious of the language that I constantly see used uh, about people who support independence, and I, I use that term, which is cumbersome, because I prefer that to nationalist for obvious reasons. I mean, nationalist, as we all know, has two dictionary definitions. It, it can mean the kind of poisonous nationalism which tend to be implied by people using it against the independence movement, but it can also just mean a, a belief in self-determination, which I think is what describes most people uh, who support independence here. Not all, but, but most. Um, separatist, very, very emotive word. I mean, that, that to me is true. If you look in the dictionary, it just means a desire to separate, but it's, a, it's an emotive word in the way it's been used historically and it's also doesn't describe for somebody like me it doesn't describe my, my starting point my starting point is not to do harm to the UK it's just I've come to the view given the state of UK politics that actually this is the the better bet um, if it's not that you're you're cultist you know you're dismissed as a cultist or or painfully naive you know there's a whole array of terms anti-English of course I don't feel particularly anti-English because I still feel pretty English and honest with you um so, you know, and it's not, it's not, this is, it happens all over the place. I mean, the, the one that most exercised me today, as it does many, is the word, in, not in a Scottish context, but is the word woke, which is just used ridiculously by, by much of the right-wing press to describe sort of anybody with remotely progressive values. I mean, it just, it's just, a, it's, it's intellectually lazy apart from anything else. I and mean, it's just a put down, it's an insult. Yeah. So, so your journey from a no in 2014 to uh, uh, being supportive in, in a broad sense, uh, though you have reservations, and we can talk about those perhaps later, yeah. of independence. Uh, that came about largely because of your concerns with the way the UK is governed. Is that right? Yeah, I think, that, I think that's true largely. I mean, it's, it's hard to sort of, sort of say that there was a single moment or a single... Um, point. I, mean, I should say to clarify, I mean, I, I, I think my position now is I am absolutely certain I would vote for independence given the chance. Um, that doesn't mean to say I don't have doubts about it, and I'm not even, you know, 100% sure it's the right thing to do, but, but weighing up the various options, and uh, we'll come on to this, that's how I would vote. Um, 
but I'd be insulting people's intelligence if I said that this was my starting point. I mean, my starting point, my preference would be to go back in time and to try to make a better union, but I, I simply believe we're past the point of no return on that. Um, why, why is uh, that, Richard? Why do you think they're past Well, I, I think, so, so it's, to answer your two questions together, I think, um, I think various things happened uh, after 2016, when it was a key the Brexit vote, um, to start pushing me uh, in this direction. Um, I mean, I could see that the morning, you know, I could see the soon, as soon as the, the vote for Brexit happened, even though it didn't, didn't convert me overnight, I mean, it was just a matter of logic to me that that reopened the justification for Indie Ref 2. I mean, you, you cannot escape the fact that, that one of the principal lines of the Better Together campaign was that the best way for Scotland to stay in the EU uh, was to stay in the UK. I mean, it's just inescapable. I mean, nobody can deny that. I mean, and people, yeah, when asked that question, just to avoid a question. I mean, that's, that's an, in, an insult to the intelligence. Um, but I think the Brexit process, uh, and I, I mean, I voted against Brexit. I think it's a disastrous mistake, but not, not so much for the act of leaving, but because of what it's done to our political culture and our relations with Europe. Uh, although I think the act of leaving was, was wrong as well. Um, but I mean, really from the day after the Brexit vote, there was, you know, where there shouldn't, and the, the independence movement can learn from this in the event that Scotland does become independent. There was, to my mind, a process of, of othering of anybody who hadn't voted to leave. So where, you, where you'd expect a kind of coming together and, and a degree of empathy and a degree of, you know, it was quite a narrow result. Let's see how we can make this work together and have sort of grown up politics. I mean, what we saw was, the absolute opposite um, and you know not only were people who voted to remain told to stay quiet they were it was pretty clear from the Tory and let's face it it was a conservative party issue um, that you know, our views were not welcome on what the UK should look like and how we should do Brexit so um, you know for, for a process of years really it got, it got worse and worse but it was very clear that what, what, what people were kind of laughably portraying this as democracy in action there was no democratic outlet for anybody at all until Brexit was de delivered, which it still hasn't been really, um, to have any say at all in, on, the, in the, on the shape of our relations with Europe as nonsensical. So, you know, I, I felt from that point on a kind of gradual pushing away um, from the UK that I had grown to love and support. No, no, not the cultural side, not the heritage side, but the politics. Um, and... This is not a comment on the SNP either way. I mean, I'm sort of neutral on the SNP. They have, like most parties, people I admire greatly, people I don't admire so much. Um, but I, I, I don't think there's anything the SNP said at that time to pull me towards independence. It was, I was pushed there by the Conservative Party and, the, and, the, and the, the Scottish Conservatives. And, you know, they know this in private. They, they, they know this has happened. Many, many unionists, I'm pretty confident, have, have moved in my direction because of the actions of the Conservative Party and the, and the inability, the refusal of the Scottish Conservatives to stand up for what Scots voted for in that referendum, which should have led, I think, to at least some kind of principled stand. They may not have got anywhere with it uh, in favour of much softer Brexit. Um, you know, politics, you're in politics, you need to show courage. And I, I, I think there has been a lamentable lack of courage shown by the Scottish Conservatives over the last few years. And they have, they have themselves to blame for a lot of where we've got to now. What do you think of the quality? I mean, this is a loaded question, so I apologize, but several people I've interviewed recently have, have deplored the lack of quality on the opposition benches at Hollywood. 
Yeah. See, the reason the SNP does what it does is because there's nobody there of any great quality to posit alternatives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's probably something in that, but I think there's a bigger picture here. I mean, I, I, there probably is a lack of quality in Hollywood. I mean, I, I find it amusing when people people cite that as the reason why Scotland couldn't be independent, because you look at Westminster and you don't see it oozing with quality at the moment. I mean, that could change. Still some great quality, I might add, some very fantastic politicians Westminster and Hollywood. I just feel there's a bigger picture at stake. I mean, everything I've just described here, um, you know, is is changing. I'm not speaking for everybody. I mean, I, I, I can I could say, I mean, I think one of your, one, somebody's asked, do I, know, do I know other people who've moved from no to yes? Um, that's a good question. I don't know if I know anybody who's, in my personal acquaintance, who's definitively done that. Um, I certainly know people who are now more open to it. And, and I've heard anecdotes of them who know people you know, do, in similar places you know, and who will vote for SNP at this election. Um, I think most people hedge their bets. And sometimes I wish I'd hedge my own bets, although it wouldn't have got me on this show. Because it's easier to hedge your bets, really. And it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do because it's a very difficult, complex question. Um, I mean, we tend to see everything portrayed through the lens of economics, certainly in the, in the unionist press, for reasons I well understand, because I think it's in the short term, it's where you might argue the strongest case, or one thing, one thing, you know, there's quite a strong case against independence because it would undoubtedly be a short term, short to medium term economic hit. Um, but I mean, it's much more than just economics. It's about governance and democracy. Um, yeah, and the severe state we're in, and we should talk about this. Um, and as I say, about, about all the social, cultural, historical ties too, which are, are much harder to articulate. Yeah. Um, well, so let's talk a little bit about yeah. Brexit was perhaps you know, a, a point where you felt that this is just not what I want at all. Yeah. Uh, but what has happened subsequently, which has sort of reinforced your need? To yeah, take... I didn't finish my answer before, did I? I think um, I think if there was a defining moment. It was the it was Johnson's victory in twenty nineteen. It took a long time for me to get there. You know, I think I mean I was dismayed for through you know, Theresa May gets let off for a lot these days because she's been succeeded by Boris Johnson. But I mean. She has a lot of responsibility for where where we got to, um, but you know she was essentially, I think, somebody who believed in telling the truth and struggled to do that in the context of Brexit because of the trade-offs involved, and you could see the pain and anguish on her face having to deal with it. Um, Johnson, as we know, is, is lies effortlessly um, and has no problem doing it at all. Um, and I felt that the victory, Johnson's victory in 2019 and the scale of that victory, um, it, it, it made me feel something had changed immeasurably. Um, no, it was an unusual election because I, you know, I don't think he, he was, he was opposed, he wasn't, the, you know, there's a the choice between Johnson and, and Corbyn who many people felt similarly strongly about for different reasons. Um, but um, I do think that that was the moment for me when things, felt quite clear and I, by that I mean it, it's still you know it's still a question I accept I could be wrong on but you know I think we need to take a step back and we've got so used over the last five years to the the scale of the decline and the nature of the government we have that you, you sometimes have to step back and 
and look at the bigger picture. Um, and it's not a time for mincing words. You know, we, we, we have a prime minister who is a pathological liar, um, who is effect effectively all powerful at the moment, can do anything he wants. He's a security risk. I mean, if he were a civil servant, he'd get nowhere near security clearance when he, he won't tell us who's paying him. Um, you know, we need to be blunt, blunt about these things. Our, our liberal sensitivities tend to make us sort of dissing, you know, measure our words, and quite rightly, usually. But there are times when I think you shouldn't measure your words. So we, you know, that, that's one thing. Uh, we have a government which treats any form of scrutiny or, or, or attempt to hold it to account as a hostile attack. Um, and it is one by one attacking all the institutions that have the job of doing that, parliament, civil service, the judiciary, the media. Um, we have a government which is unquestionably undermining the devolved uh, settlements and will continue to do that in Scotland and Wales. Uh, we have a government which is mired in corruption um, and which uh, you know, is fairly brazenly making it clear to voters in Hartlepool at the moment and elsewhere that, you know, voting for it will, will do, do them lots of favours in terms of getting public money. You know, and, and by implication, people, areas that don't vote for it will, will lose out. Um, and then bigger still, I mean, you, you know, we have in all too recent memory, I'm not going to get into Northern Irish politics, but we have, you know, civil conflict in the UK in all too recent memory. We have a government which for ideological reasons has destabilised a very fragile peace settlement and spent the last two years lying about its own role in it. I mean, I, I, I don't find, I know some people will, will say that's not true. I, I, I think it's fairly unquestionable, actually. But almost biggest for me of all, I mean, given my background, is we, you know, we, we and I, when I say we, I mean the UK five years ago, we're in a, in a position of great geopolitical strength, um, you know, punching above our weight, as people often said. I mean, influential globally, highly influential within Europe. And, you know, we're missed now by many of our European allies, the ones who depended on the UK's sort of wisdom, if you like, and, and point of view. Um, you know, in, in five short years, we've gone from that position to a position where we've made adversaries of the entire European continent, uh, which, you know, which is against the kind of strategy of Britain since Britain started to exist, not to unite the continent against us. Um, yeah, we've trashed our international reputation. Um, we've twice now threatened to break international law. Um, you know, at best, we've become an international laughing stock. At worst, you could describe this as a nascent rogue state behavior. Um, this is serious stuff, you know, and, and to add to that, I mean, it's no secret there are many within government or who've been within government who've, who've stated it on the record in the past that they'd like to see the EU collapse, um, you know. And yeah, these are the people who, who have the gall to tell us, you know, whatever you think of the EU, and I understand many of the criticisms, it is essentially a peace project. These people have the gall to tell us what our fathers and our ancestors fought for in a war, you know, uh, while trying to dismantle a peace project on our, on our doorstep. So. You can tell I feel strongly about this stuff, but it's, you know, it's important. It matters, this stuff, for our democracy. And if, if you're persuaded that this is just democracy because we get a vote every five years, I'm afraid you're wrong. You know, it, it isn't democracy. Um, if you don't behave democratically, the fact you've been democratically elected doesn't mean, doesn't make you a Democrat. Um, so I think, I think people, none of this is to say there are not huge and essential questions that the independence movement have to answer. But I think what I'm trying to get across to unionists um, is that there is a huge risk to staying in the UK too at the moment. Um, you know, I, my starting point on this, it's a bit of a cliche, is I, I have young children, as I've just told you. Um, 
in 10 years time, my eldest will be reaching adulthood. Um, I want her to grow up in a liberal democracy. I mean, there is an argument that liberal democracy is a threat globally at the moment. I mean, Joe Biden was making this point last week. Um, but at the moment, I think given the state of the UK and where it's heading, um, and given where I think Scotland would try to get to with independence, including either through joining the EU or close association, I think independence provides a, a more secure chance of that. Um, not only a liberal democracy, but one which has grown up relations with its European neighbours, I might add, which I think is, is very important. Um, I've often reflected that, you know, you, it has been British government practice since the war to stay close to Europe and to be on good terms with our European allies. So you know, which government is now truer to that traditional British strategy, the British government or the Scottish government? Um, unanswerable. Um, so there's, there's, there's an argument. Thank you um, for that. There, there is an argument that says, well, you know, Richard, you can see you're upset, but uh, and understand your reasons uh, very well. But wouldn't it be best just to sit tight and hope for a Labour government? And, and with yeah. all of these concerns you, that you've just identified will just disappear, surely? It's a very valid argument. And it's the argument that I would say most of my, uh, or many of my friends and family um, would espouse. Um, and it's, and, and the, the truth is, I don't, I, we don't know the answer to that. You're dealing with uncertainties and you have to assess risk. Um, I, I think it's very important that, Scottish voters look at English politics as well as Scottish politics. It's, it's every bit as important, actually, because, I mean, you, you might very reasonably say that it's not healthy for any power, any party to be in power for as long as the SNP has here. And I'd agree with that. It's not a criticism of them as such. It's just a, the nature of democracy. It's not healthy. Um, but, um, well, I mean, the, the, the first thing people say is, well, it's, it's just Boris Johnson. And, you know, Boris Johnson's here, he'll be gone tomorrow, and democracies move on. Um, I don't really buy that. I mean, this, this whole fiasco has been caused by Conservative Party inviting. Um, most, most Conservative moderates have long since been kicked out of the party. Um, if Johnson goes tomorrow, and he'll, he'll only go when Tory MPs decide he's a risk to their electoral chances, which I don't think he is. Uh, or will be. I think I'll keep. I think they hang on to him. Um, he's not. He, you know, there isn't somebody pleasant and benign waiting to take his place. So we, you know, we, we we are stuck with what this party has become for the moment. Um, I mean, I never say never. I sincerely hope that will change, but it's not going to change quickly. Um, and I must add, I mean, this is not an anti-conservative. I'm not a conservative, but I mean, I, there are plenty of conservatives I greatly admire. Most of them are no longer in the party, but it's it's a, you know it's a pro-democracy point. These people. Yeah, have been taken over. This party's been taken over by people who are not democratic. Um, the the Labour point's important, but I but I think is almost even more important than the points I made about the Conservatives. The, the electoral system is not able to cope with where we are right now. Um, I have a great deal of sympathy for the Labour Party. Um, they and for Keir Starmer, I, I don't, he's not particularly impressing me, but I think he's got an almost impossible job. Um, he has to appeal to different constituencies. He has to somehow win back the red wall voters in northern england and, uh, and it looks like he's going to fail in the first step of that in hartlepool tomorrow it seems to me highly unlikely given the state of the culture wars at the moment and and the way the conservatives are very skillfully deploying them that labor are going to win either on their own or through a so-called progressive alliance in three years time um, which means 
if I'm right, you're looking at least eight more years of Conservative government. Um, and we'll come back to what that might mean. But you know, even if Labour were to win, um, can I see them delivering the electoral form needed to, to prevent zealots ever taking over the UK again? Possibly. I mean, tricky, but I think possibly. The constitutional reform uh, needed, I think, to, to get the union into better shape. Highly unlikely. Um, you and I have discussed this separately, but, you know, what's in that for the English? I mean, I have some sympathy for that from, with my English apple for that perspective. Um, if Starmer became PM and tried to at least take us close to the EU, if not joining, uh, as, as I'm sure he would, can you imagine the, the hostility of the coverage he'd be getting in the, in the, the English press particularly? Um, you know, his, his job would be impossible. Um, we are, you know, we are in the grip of this, this hard right. Uh, I'm not using the word conspiracy because I don't believe in those, but you know, media, um, political parties. I, I just don't see Labour getting into power and having the leverage to do the kinds of things that would would give me the hope that I'm looking for. Um, so I think we're, I think we're in. I may be wrong, you know. I, I, I think I'm not wrong, but I may be wrong, and this is this is the key question. Um, if they don't get into power, we are in a, a spiral. I think we're, things are going to get worse. I think we will end up like Erdogan's Turkey or Orbán's Hungary. Um, I don't want my children to grow up in that country, and I, you know, it pains me hugely uh, to to countenance the breakup of the UK. And I think this is something people in the independence group who don't understand that do need to understand that there may be many people who will vote for independence one day if they get the chance, who will will do so. With great sorrow. Um, now, I, I, I'm conscious this all sounds very negative. That, that's not to say there isn't a positive case for independence. And I can see it and I believe in it. I, I think my point is many people wouldn't get to the point where they're even considering it um, without what's happened in the last few years. Yeah, it, it, I mean, some people have argued that um, Britain can only be, <laughs> this is going to sound wrong, Britain can only be restored. Uh, if, if Scotland becomes independent, uh, because there needs to be a, a shock to the system, i.e. what you're reaching for, uh, some might say, is major constitutional reform. And history tells us that that's very unlikely unless there's a shock to the system. People yeah. don't naturally gravitate to saying one morning, hey, Let's abolish the House of Lords. <laughs> Let's uh, get rid of first past the post. I mean, these are generally the outcome of something fairly traumatic happening uh, yeah. that, that shocks the body politic into understanding that things cannot carry on the way they have been doing. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I hear those. Those. I mean, I've often, you know, I've heard the argument put that that that, that England needs the. the the dissolution of the union as much as Scotland and others do. I'm not, I'm not sure I, I mean, there may be something in that. I, I haven't seen that argument fully work through. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily resonate with me. Um, I, I do think um, it's common wisdom, if you like, to say that England needs a shock and England needs sort of, um, yeah, I mean, it clearly does need a, a electoral reform. I, I find that hard to, to argue with. But, um, um, because, and one of the tragedies I think about England is that the Brexit vote and the, the the nature of the Conservative Party, which is to to shape shift and to sort of pull in people from all over, means that there's 
you know, a minority, a considerable minority, might I might add, have, have led us to this point. Um, but I don't know. I I I don't feel, you know, I, I don't feel the authority to speak in in detail about English politics because I I am. Um, I think it'd be patronizing to do that and I don't live in England anymore and I you know um and even when I did I didn't I never there are parts of England I don't know that well um um isn't that perhaps the root of the issue in, in some respects yeah it is that uh, the UK is perhaps over centralized yeah and because devolution took the form that it did i.e in, in a very sort of rather unbalanced way where People in England, they were just told this is going to happen. Uh, there were votes in Wales and, and, and in Scotland, uh, but nobody in England voted. Uh, yeah. Nobody thought it was even necessary to ask them. Yeah. Uh, and any attempts to devolve power in England have been lackluster, perhaps. Uh, and that, so what has happened is we, the, the centralised state has remained very centralised, perhaps, but with this odd <laughs> acknowledgement that other bits might not want that centralisation to that degree. So they will have this little bit of decentralisation, but we must keep the rest of it close to hand, as it were. And I think that's very disabling if, if you live in, say, Northern England, for example. Now, yeah. Maybe the Hartlepool result will confound all of this and say, well, people don't care too much. Uh, I, I would have thought people do care. I would have thought people that lived in Yorkshire do care that that Yorkshire has a voice for Yorkshire. I mean, it, it would seem to be odd if they didn't. I mean, maybe they didn't too. And I, I, I can't speak for Yorkshire, but I agree. I think there's um, you know, it, it's dangerous ground. It's very easy to get into a place where you, um, which I don't want to do, where you patronise voters in England who voted a certain way and voted in a way that I don't think is in the interest of the UK. Um, I I well understand, I think, the you know, much of the anger that may have driven the Brexit vote. I can't pretend to fully understand the motivations, but I so I don't like to sort of make assumptions about how people in England on mass feel. I mean England is a is a very divided place politically, like Scotland, I think. I mean it's it's not divided on the independence question, but it's certainly divided on you know, on the Brexit and sort of associated issues question. And um, um, I don't know how that resolves itself. I, I, I'm not fully convinced by the argument that, that Scottish independence um, would sort of help England solve its own governance problems. It might do. Um, and I think this comes back to one of the questions why this is quite a painful, painful issue, because we, we, you know, we, we, all, we all have multiple identities. We all have um, split loyalties almost. I mean, I think, if, I think if I were still living in England, um, with the same set of values, the same background, I would probably be very sad and opposed to the idea of Scottish independence because I would feel that the loss of something, which indeed I, I do when I think about it here, but I, but I, you know, but I think I think much of that is already lost. That's my my sadness. So I think um, um, I'm not quite sure where I'm going with this, but I think I I I do you know I do I do have that English side of me that sort of feels sad about the loss of the union. Yeah. So if we were to end up with a Scandinavian model yeah. for, for this archipelago, how would you feel about that? And for example, the Scandinavians cooperate all the time, but the Danes have their own sovereignty, as do the Norwegians, as do the Swedes. Uh, they sometimes disagree, uh, uh, perhaps not very often, but they do from time to time. 
people still see themselves as Danish, but somehow they're equally comfortable with Scandinavia. They have an airline, which is called SES. <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, there are, there are sovereign groups within that umbrella entity. Uh, how would you feel about that as a model? Well, I mean, it would, it would, it would, it would delight me in the event of independence. If that's, I mean, not only would I like it, but I think that's where where we would have to end up. Um, I think, you know, I think um, I've no question. In fact, that what one of the it, it may be the people who can see a case for independence with their head, but their heart just prevents them going next tomorrow because of that worry about severing ties with the UK, with, with the rump UK, with England. Um, and not only that, with that, with that being exploited by politicians, you know, I mean, let, you know, let's face it, there is a lot of, there is some anti-Englishness up here. There is, I, I haven't experienced it myself at all, but, I, but it'd be naive to say it doesn't exist at all. I don't think it's huge numbers. There's certainly anti-Scottishness in England. I mean, you don't, you don't have to look far on social media. I mean, social media is a bad place to look for anything, but, um, That's you know, sure. the, you know, that worry that malign forces on both sides will kind of, rub salt into the wound rather than build to you know build bridges that keep us close and uh yeah and i have to say one of the actors that worries me and that is the current uk government i mean i don't think they, they they're not a government that believes in reaching out and making friends with people who don't share their views <laughs> they're a government who sees any anything other than their worldview as an act of hostility um so it's a it's a bit of a paradox in a way. The, the, you know, the, the, the impetus to leave feels all the greater when we have a government such as the current one that we have under the Conservatives. Um, um, equally, they're likely to make it more difficult for, for that departure to happen, I think. Um, but to come back to your point, I think, I think some kind of Scandinavian model will be entirely desirable. I mean, you have to assume there'd be a common travel area with the UK as, a, as there was with Ireland, and that could build, be built, you know, lead to something else too. Um, there's no question that it were Scotland to to join the EU or, or even the the EU after there would be there would have to be a border and and you know if, if people start pretending that's not the case then they're misleading us. Um, I think that would be a great shame. Um, I would feel it personally, but you know we we let's be clear of this. If that were to happen, it's because the Brexiteers believe in building borders. I mean, it's not a it's not the starting point for the independence movement to create a hard border with England. It's a result of hard Brexit. Now you might argue that that's true, but we can't. You know, it, it's still too much to contemplate. I would argue that if you, you know, if your position is that because of hard Brexit, we can't detach ourselves, I, I would I would argue the opposite. I mean, I think um, <laughs> I feel the need to get away from the, the 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 culture which is currently dominating English government. Yeah, yeah. So, if for example. You had your, uh, you felt independence was going to happen. What sort of, because you would have a blank, let's assume you're a blank sheet of paper and you were running Scotland after independence. What sort of country would you create? What sort of state would you feel would be appropriate? Uh, well, I would, I think the starting point would be an electoral system, which is already better than that of Westminster, but probably could do with further refinement. Um, I'm naturally drawn towards PR while understanding that the purest forms of PR bring other drawbacks. But I am, um, you know, I'm, I'm fed up with, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a classic tactical voter. I've always voted tactically because, because I am, 
I think you have to you have to vote with the system that's delivered to you. But I, I would love to live in a country where I could vote always for the party I want to vote for on the basis of their policies rather than you know, to prevent the parties I don't want getting into power. Um, so I think a, a you know, a, a watertight political system, which I, I hope would lead to a healthier multi-party democracy than we have in the UK. Um, you'd have to aspire to a system which didn't allow for the dominance of two great parties to the exclusion of all else, which PR would, would do. Um, I happen to think certainly the Conservative Party in a newly independent Scotland would be a very strong player and would probably at some point in the future form a government. I wouldn't vote for it myself, but I think that would be, you know, it would be healthy to have a strong Conservative Party. And I think it'd be healthy for the Conservative Party to be free of the shackles of the UK party. Um, I would want to live in a country which, um, you know, I'm a strong believer in the EU, um, not, not uncritically, but because I think it's it's for the greater good. Um, I would I would certainly aspire to EU membership. I I feel the loss of freedom of movement, again, when I think of my children, um, with tremendous anger, actually. I mean, it's a tremendous sense of loss, but I mean, they've had that taken away from them. For many, many people, that's a, that has a, had a very real life and devastating effects already. And I'm not going to compare the loss of my children's theoretical rights to the damage that that has already done to, to people's lives as we speak. Um, but it is a huge loss, and I think something really precious has been broken. So I would certainly aspire to getting back into that. Um, but I would I would want to Scotland, which, as you said, John had extremely strong links with the UK, um, uh, whatever the nature of the UK government. Um, but hopefully, in the future, there'll be a more benign one, um, and that did its best to maintain those very strong cultural links, which I think I suspect even people who are uh, who, you know lifelong independent supporters feel on one level or another. Um, I, I don't know, but I, I can't speak for them, but I, but I suspect they do. What would you say if somebody offered you the job of setting up a different in an independent Scotland? <laughs> um, I would say no, uh, because generally I'm not, um, I'm not a development expert. I think I'd probably do for somebody better, but I, I would love to be part of that. Uh, I'd love to be part of a I said that I've suddenly given up office work and, and it doesn't miss it at all. But I think um, I think if Scotland were to become independent before I reached retirement age, which isn't that far off, um, I would love to be part and help part of helping to build that. And, and I'd be very interested in part of whatever it took to maintain those links with with England and the rest of the UK. What about running for office? Uh, I don't think so. Um, other people have said that to me. I, I think, as I just said to you earlier, I was, uh, you know, when you're a civil servant, you get used to never being able to say what you want or, uh, and you just accept it as, as a way of life, you know, uh, in public. Um, I'm hugely enjoying being able to say what I want at the moment. <laughs> and, and to some extent, that's that's the case, obviously, when you're a political party too. I mean, I, for reasons I well understand. So you, I, I, I think the, this debate needs more non-political voices. Uh, yeah, shouting quite loudly on both sides of the debate, I might add. Um, you know, it is a. It frustrates me that you can have these conversations with friends and family. You can disagree with each other very strongly sometimes, but you know, you don't you don't bear any resentment towards each other. You just you treat each other as the adults, and you you get you love each other just as much at the end of it. And yet, put it into the media and the political form, and it's it's bile. It's you know, and I'm not blaming one party or another for this. I mean, it's just what the political system and the need to win seats does, but it's particularly unpleasant in the at the moment. And uh, 
the more we can have a sort of civil society debate, which of course exists already. I know it does, but debate, um, grown up debate about it, the better. I mean, I, I think most people would agree with you, frankly. And uh, a lot of people feel, and I would like to get your view on this, please, that uh, the, the dumbing down, if I can call it that, of politics, some of it borrowed from the states, but sometimes borrowed very willingly. Yeah. Uh, has been aided by the mainstream media. They, they, they could have staunched this. They could have said, no, you can't come on and lie. Uh, because our duty of impartiality, they might say, they might argue, is we, we are, we're going to allow somebody else to follow you, we'll also lie. And therefore, we're completely impartial. Whereas you could argue, well, no, that's not impartiality. That's, you do a disservice to everybody if you allow people to appear in the media and the public prints and just plain lie uh, without, without remorse. So, what's your view on that? Do you think the media has played a role in, in dumbing down? I think it has. I, I don't like attacking journalists because I think they have a um, very, very difficult job at the moment. Um, and I'm sure they're mostly doing their best. Uh, I mean, there are different kinds of journalists, let's face it. Um, um, uh, I'm also very, very critical of individual journalists. I think they get it wrong. Um, but I think the pressures, we, we probably underestimate the pressures they're under, um, both from their, their own management, um, from the two sides you know, of any debate going on with them. Having said all that, I think some of the editorial decisions that are taken, um, you know, climate change is a classic one, isn't it? To always have a climate change denier on to counterbalance the, counter, the, the argument that there is such a thing as climate change um, is, is wrong. And I, I, I can't think of any examples off the hand right now, but yeah, so I, yeah, I, I think the media has helped um, facilitate to a degree a culture of being able to get away with barefaced lying. I mean, lying is a, is a, is a difficult word for any journalist to use because you, know, you can't always prove intent, can you? I mean, you can say misleading, but one, you know, once something is known to be verifiably inaccurate and then not corrected, then you have to conclude it's a deliberate lie. And you can do that with Boris Johnson on a daily basis. Um, but it's, you know, it's very easy to not the BBC, which is often the subtext of this. And I, and I, I think there's a huge amount to criticize them for, but I, I think they have an in, in, incredibly difficult job, the journalists at the BBC. Um, they're, you know, they're, uh, look what's happening to the BBC board at the moment. And the, you know, Tory donors, uh, Tory party members, um, Joining the board, um, it's uh, it's often said, you know, by 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 um, overdoing the attacks on the BBC, however warranted they are, you risk uh, destroying the whole thing. And I think I do still think that destroying the BBC and its news service would be would be a tragic loss. And it's an example of something actually. I would like to see you, you going back to your point about the maintaining links in an independent Scotland. You hope that some kind of link on that basis will be maintained. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm interested in what you say because it's hard to believe that the BBC can continue to be impartial if, if its entire governance arrangement yeah. has been set in place by the government. <laughs> I, I agree. I mean, I think, I think you're seeing, you're probably seeing something quite extreme at the moment because we have an extreme government in place. But I mean, I think it's, it's always been the case, I think, that BBC coverage will tend to be biased towards the government of the day and i think if we're honest that happened under the labor government too um obviously i'm talking about the uk government here um and i suppose it's just something which tends to happen 
you know, by virtue of the the way the BBC gets its funding, um, and it's not it's not healthy. Um, that said, I think there's so much that's good about BBC too. It'd be a shame to lose it. Um, but it underlines the importance of having other alternatives to the BBC. Um, yeah. um, and then uh, that you were talking about broadcast media, um, print media. You know, I don't I don't read it all. Um, where do you begin? I mean, there's there is a lot of utter poison printed in in the print media. Um, I think it's a it's a real issue in this country. Um, I I don't begin to know how to tackle it, but I mean it's the it's a dominance of that section of the media which worries me almost as much as the nature of the government and the influence they have on the government. Yeah. It's, I, suppose, it's I suppose one rather comforting thought is that uh, young people less and less use the mainstream media. Yeah, uh, they, they have their own of the social media. They have all sorts of other ways of finding out what is happening and what's important to them. Yeah. Uh, and of course, in Scotland, people can vote from 16 onwards. Yeah. Uh, I hear tell that's going to be extended uh, in England. I think it's also the case in Wales, perhaps. Um, uh, how do you feel about that, about 16-year-olds voting? Are you for it or against it? Uh, I think I'm for it. It's, it's, it's funny, it's not something I've thought about a great deal. I, don't, you know, I, know, you're, I know you have to have a view on everything if you, if you appear on the radio, so apologies. I think... <laughs> I think um, uh, but I, my instincts tell me it's it's a good thing. I think um, if you're old enough to do some things at the age of sixteen, you should be old enough to to vote. I would have thought, and it, it should encourage. I mean, people who say that you're at sixteen, you're not old enough to vote. Um, I think the problem with that argument is, you know, it's it's not just about age, isn't it? It's about you know, you can you can get you can get on a very dangerous road when you're talking about democracy and who should be allowed to vote and who shouldn't be allowed to vote. So I think if you're defined as an adult at a certain age, in some respect, that should extend to the voting age. Um, I haven't given it a great deal of thought, I'll be honest with you, but my, my instincts are that, uh, that that feels right to me. Well, perhaps once your daughter gets a few years older, you'll start to think. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm always reminded of that lovely quote by uh, um, Mark Twain, who, uh, who said that when he was 15, he thought his father was the most ignorant man he'd ever met. <laughs> and. Uh, by the time he was 21, he was astonished how much his father had learned in six short years. Right. <laughs> We're almost at the end of our time, and we've got about four or five minutes to go, Richard. Is there any particular message that you would like to give to people watching and listening tonight that perhaps we haven't yeah. covered? Yeah, I think, I mean, good question. It's hard to say this stuff without sounding cheesy, isn't it? But I think it's just that repeating that point about trying to understand each other. You know, there's great anger around the moment, and that's understandable. People have real passions, you know. And of course, there'd be people who would listen to what I just said to you and think I'm talking delusional rubbish, you know. Um, uh, yeah, on the conservative side, I, um, I I do think I do think there's something out of the ordinary about the nature of the, of the current Conservative Party, and I and I, I and I suspect many conservatives. In Scotland and England agree with me, you know, um, and and I think so. I think there's a message in there about this isn't just a normal politics. We're on, we're on, we're in dangerous times, you know, and we need to fight for our democratic rights because uh, it's precious and we can lose it. But then I think the bigger message too is that we we yeah we we just need to try to understand each other and you know without letting tempers fray us. It's difficult. It's not always easy. Um, Social media makes it very difficult. You know, we all we all form bad habits. I've done it myself. Um, 
we just have to try to be better than that and try to to understand each other, try to be patient with each other's views. And I guess it would try to imagine if you're having an argument on social media that actually you're talking to a friend um, yeah. face to face and, you know, and then accommodate your behavior accordingly. Um, but, you know, I wrote a piece in the Times about this last year and I, I, I sort of deliberately, provocatively ended off by saying, am I being naive? And I got lots of people on social media saying, you're being naive. Um, <laughs> and then we had, you know, nice friendly chats with each other. But it's, um, <laughs> um, I probably am being a bit naive, but, you know, there's no harm in, in reaching high, is it? <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I, I, I mean, if you don't mind me saying so, you, you have a certain diffidence that comes from the civil service. <laughs> Of, of expressing yourself in a way that uh, would not be offensive to anyone, uh, you know, and you're very guarded in your comments sometimes. But I can feel the passion underneath, uh, and uh, and maybe in, in your new role you'll get a chance to talk more and more about what's important to you. I think that's very important. I think when you have a voice, it's good to use it. I would say. Well, I started writing a year ago. Uh, I'm not a journalist. I started writing really out of frustration. I just wanted to get things off my chest. And uh, I think I've developed what you might call a kind of style of controlled anger. Um, I'm not really normally a very angry person. Um, and I'm not a particularly political person, actually. I, I, um, I've been politic, And I'm not particularly political in terms of policy issues. You know, I just have been politicised, as I've many, by the events of the last few years. Um, and what I really believe in is... is is democracy, you know, and that's a very broad term, but but functioning democracy rather than pretend democracy. Yeah, and I suspect what we're about to enter, regardless of the results of the elections tomorrow, uh, is an environment where the whole sort of unionist independence lexicon will be yeah. placed to one side. It will be a, a Democrat versus non-anti-democracy discussion yeah. increasingly. Uh, and maybe for people outside Scotland, Scotland will be the place where that debate will be engaged, perhaps, uh, which might not be a terribly bad thing, frankly, thinking about it. Um, well, we're, our, our time is almost up, Richard. Uh, let me thank you very much indeed. We've had a bunch of questions, but most of, most of them you've already anticipated. You answered them before they arrived. And uh, I mean, Ruth Hanratty said, uh, your children won't benefit from Erasmus, which infuriates me. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree with that point earlier. Maybe they will, maybe they still will, we'll see. Okay. But no, you're right, it, it does infuriate me, it's, it's disgusting. Um, but we, we're going to have to end there, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. So I encourage you to keep speaking out if you want. By the way, folks, if you want to follow uh, Richard's views, he writes regularly for The Times. Uh, you, he's got a piece coming out sometime soon, maybe in the next couple of three days. Please look out for it. Um, what's it headlined again, please, Richard? Do you remember? Well, I should say, I mean, I, I, I haven't been promised. I've just been told it probably will be published. I, I, I don't have a, I'm not a formal employee. Um, I, I don't know what the, what the title will be if it is published, but it's, it's really the point I've been talking about. That the question, people need to think about democracy and the threat to it in considering the independence question, not just the, the economics. It's, it's more than just that. Okay, that's super. That's it. So there you are, folks. You got a chance to look at a, 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 perhaps a, a summary of some of the points that we'll be covering tonight, and I would encourage you to do so. I would also please encourage you to look out for uh, Dr. Elliot Bulmer's column in the, the Constitution column in the Sunday National, 
in the 7B supplement this week, because he'll be talking about some of the things that Richard has been addressing tonight so eloquently. Uh, and I, I think he's going to call it how independence might save Britain. Now, there's a controversial <laughs> So you'll find that in the seven days section. We've got a very special guest next week. Uh, I can't tell you much more about it, except that it, it, it will be a woman. And we're looking forward to her views on uh, perhaps the result of the elections, uh, how uh, women feel about the, uh, the way that Scotland is governed, and for that matter, the UK more generally. And please support India Live. Uh, you'll see the what's on guide at the bottom. Let me just remind you that it's www.whatsonguide.scot. You can go there, find about all the programs, including this one, uh, and find out about the guests who are lined up for the, the weeks ahead. So please, please consult that. It's very, very helpful. And thanks again. Big thank you to Richard. And thank you to you for joining us tonight. And remember, it's been a great day for British democracy. Good night all. Take care.